This morning, we conclude our series on selected psalms. The last few psalms in this series have all had something in common. They all begin and end with a command to praise the Lord. Uh, Literally, hallelujah. The last psalms in the Psalter, last five of them, they all, all begin and end this way. And I wonder if that has bothered you, that you have been, by these psalms, commanded to praise the Lord. I wonder if there's ever been a part of you that's thought, man, psalm after psalm is commanding me to praise the Lord, but some days I just don't feel like it. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you don't feel like giving praise to the Lord today. As we study Psalm 148, I'm not going to apologize for the fact that the Lord God, through his word, commands you to give him praise. But here's something that you need to understand. When God commands your praise, he usually provides a reason for it. Here's a reason why you may always praise your maker, though you are, perhaps even this day, miserable. Because he has shown you mercy in Jesus Christ. You may always praise your maker because he has shown you mercy in Jesus Christ. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about from God's word together this morning. The last five psalms, as I said, they all begin and they end with this command to praise the Lord. They each sound, each of these psalms toward the end of the Psalter, they all sound their their own kind of distinct note of praise. So in, in Psalm 146, we learned that we should praise God and we should put our hope in him as our heavenly help. Then in Psalm 147 that we learned about last week, we learned that we should praise God for his care for his creation and his care for his covenant people. This morning, we will see that Psalm 148 calls for us to praise our maker for his might, his majesty, and his mercy. Beloved, that's the sermon in a sense. Praise your maker for his might, his majesty, and mercy. Follow along now as I read Psalm 148. Follow along in your copy of God's word. Psalm 148 says, Praise the Lord Yahweh. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not Pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men. And maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. We're going to look at this psalm in its two sections under two headings. Number one, praise your maker for his might. Praise your maker for his might. And number two, praise your maker for his majesty and mercy. 
There should be a full outline, Lord willing, in the bulletins provided that may help you to follow along. Let's begin with our first point, where this psalm commands us to praise the Maker. Praise your Maker for His might. Follow along. Read verses 1 to 6 again. Verses 1 to 6. Praise the Lord Yahweh. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded, and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Well, I trust that you see how this first section of the psalm is structured. It begins with a call to worship. Then this call is specified to two groups. The heavenly beings and the heavenly bodies are called to give praise to God. And then we're given the heavenly basis, this justification, the reason for the praise. Let's take a closer look. As with Psalms 146 and 147, the opening line of our psalm, praise the Lord, is a corporate call to worship. The, the people of Israel gathered together for worship are being called to praise, but the psalm immediately turns to the heavens, calling forth praise from the heavens and the heights. And you need to realize the heavens and the heights, they're not two different places, but the same place under different names. Here we are seeing something we're going to see all throughout the psalm. It's poetic parallelism. Uh, parallelism is where one thing is stated in the first line, and then a parallel or similar idea is restated in the second line. So here the heavens, that is to say the heights, are invited to praise the Lord. What's the psalmist speaking about here? He is speaking about the, the unseen realm in which the celestial beings, the angels, roam. That's why in verse 2 he calls the angels and the hosts to praise the Lord. Like the heavens and the heights, the angels and the hosts, they're not two different groups, but two different names for the same group. So the hosts are none other than the angelic armies of the Lord. Uh, this we see, for example, in the poetic parallelism of Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21, where we read, Bless the Lord, O you His angel, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His world. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. And of course, at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it was announced in Luke's gospel, there was an angel who appeared, only to be joined by a heavenly army of angels. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 13, we read, And suddenly there was the angel with a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. The angelic beings of the unseen realm in verses 1 and 2 are called to give praise to God. Now how do heavenly beings... How do angels give praise to God? We're given a small glimpse of this in Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, Isaiah, he's, he's given this vision of the throne room. He sees angels praising the Lord. So we, so we read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. It's an incredible, it's an awesome image of the throne room of God where he receives praise from the angelic beings. These verses here in our song, they were instructive 
to the ancient people of God. Because we learn throughout the Old Testament that they actually struggled with the worship of angels. God is the only one who is to receive praise from the heavenly beings, and yet the people of Israel were tempted to give praise to the heavenly beings. So consider 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 16, where we were told that the people of Israel, they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. A few chapters later, in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 3, we were told that under Manasseh, the people in Judah worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And this wasn't just an Old Testament problem. This was also a New Testament temptation. So in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul wrote, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. As the people of God, we must not exchange the truth about God for a lie, to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is to be blessed forever, as Paul says in Romans 1.25. Verses 1 and 2 here we see the call, call the heavenly beings of the unseen realm to rejoice and give praise to God, to, to boast in God and His glory. That's something of what praise is. Then in verses 3 and 4, we see here that this psalm calls the heavenly bodies to praise God. Verse 3, praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Here the psalmist, he calls the heavenly lights, calls on those, all those heavenly lights made on the fourth day of creation to give praise to God. We know from Psalm 103, from Luke 2, and from other passages that angels can sing. But how can the sun and the moon and the stars praise the Lord? You know, I asked that question on Tuesday afternoon at the senior living home. I was teaching their Bible study. And one sister, she immediately answered the question. Okay, so how do the sun and the moon and the stars praise the Lord? And she said, by doing what they were made to do. She was exactly right. Uh, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4, tells us how the sun and the moon and the stars praise the Lord. There we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim His handiworks. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Beloved, the sun, the moon, and the stars are preaching to you. They're praising God right in your very midst and presence. When you look up at the night sky, you are hearing a sermon on the glory of God. By carrying out their intended design, the sun and the moon and the stars, they praise the Lord. One Old Testament scholar put it like this, just as a fine piece of craftsmanship brings glory to its craftsmen, so the destiny of the created world is to glorify Yahweh by reflecting divine power. By fulfilling their divinely allotted functions, the works of the celestial creation exists as an eloquent witness to God's self-revelation through them. Just as verse 1 identified the realm of the unseen world, the unseen world roams, so verse 4 identifies the realm in which the sun and moon and stars roam. The highest heavens and the waters above the heavens refer to the night sky and the blue sky, which often looks like water. The call then is for those beings and bodies in the heavenly realms, seen and unseen, to give praise to the Lord. And in the ancient Near East, in the kind of context in which Israel lived in that ancient world, 
many of the surrounding nations, they actually gave praise to the heavenly bodies. But this is not what the psalm commands. The heavenly beings and the heavenly bodies are not to receive praise as though they are God, but to give praise to the one true God. And as we thought about earlier with angels, the people of Israel being tempted to worship angels, so it was actually with the heavenly bodies. Israel was tempted to join the surrounding nations in that false worship. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 5, we're told that those who burned incense to Baal and to the sun and moon and the constellations and all the hosts of them, they had to be removed actually by King Josiah as part of his reforms. The danger to worship the heavenly bodies as opposed to seeing the heavenly bodies inciting the praise of God, still lurks among us today. I mean, after all, a horoscope, you realize that a horoscope is a divination based upon a constellation of stars, upon the positions of the heavenly bodies. Uh, You should not view horoscopes as something fun and innocent. They are a direct challenge to God's authority and ordering and a stealing of His glory. They're an invitation to trust the stars rather than the trust of God who made the stars. And what verses 5 and 6 reveal is that we should praise the maker for his might. I mean, these verses, they they give the heavenly basis, the reason, the justification for the praise of God. You see verse 5 there, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. The word for there in the middle of verse 5 tells us why the heavenly beings and bodies should praise the Lord. The maker spoke, he commanded, and they were created. These words are a summary of Genesis 1, where over and over and over again we're told, and God said, and God said, only to find that the universe springs into existence. These words also echo what we read in Psalm 33, verse 6 and verse 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Shouldn't we wonder at the fact that God uttered a mere word, and there was light? Does this not reveal God's supreme sovereignty and might? That God speaks and creates shows that the creation is not part of him but produced by him. It is separate from him, brought into existence by his speech. Biblical scholars refer to this work of God's creation as ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And the manner in which God does it is a kind of divine fiat. It is creation by command. The creation is absolutely immediate. God speaks and it is immediately so. I mean, when was the last time you spoke and something leapt into being? Never. You've never done anything like that. But God has. Everything that ever is and was, He created. Still, even compare this to the things that man has actually physically made. I mean, we marvel at the world's tallest building. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai, it stands 828 meters tall. It is uh, 2,717 feet. It took five years to build. And it is an incredible architectural feat. It is an amazingly tall building. But remember what it sits on top of. The Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building, sits on top of the earth that God made. The Burj Khalifa is 2,700 feet tall. 
but the earth has an equatorial radius of 3,963 miles. God made the globe with his breath. It didn't even take the Lord five years to make it. The Lord made the earth, the universe, and all that is in it in less than a week. Now think about the sun, a medium-sized star with an equatorial radius of 432,000 miles. Our God created the sun by the mere power of his word. One of my favorite verses in the whole creation account in Genesis 1.16 says this, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Don't you love that? On day four, God speaks to establish the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. And then in three little words that almost appear to be tacked on as an afterthought, we read, and he made the stars. The billions and billions of stars are almost cast as if, oh yeah, and the Lord made those too. The largest star that we know about is the UI Scuti. And according to one source, the UI Scuti is over 1,700 times larger than the sun. By volume, you could fit over 5 billion suns in the UI Scuti. And he made the stars. Just, just like that. Do you see how mighty the maker of the universe is? Remember what the Lord says of himself with respect to the stars in Isaiah 40, verses 25 and 26. He says this, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings their, out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The Lord knows where all the stars are. We don't know where they are, but he does. God not only made the stars and everything in the heavenly realm, but he also sustains everything in the heavenly realms. God is mighty enough to make everything and to maintain everything. This is what verse 6 is emphasizing when it says, And he established them forever and ever. He gave, gave a decree and it shall not pass away. You realize you are sitting here, we are sitting here this very moment. We're not falling apart or being ripped apart at the seams of our flesh because God is sustaining his creation. Verse 6, it uses the word decree. In the old catechisms, they explain that biblical concept like this. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained everything whatsoever should come to pass. God made this world and grants its stability by his command and his decree. In other words, the, the universe that God made is orderly, it's predictable, it's dependable. Scientists can study the universe precisely because God has made it orderly, dependable, and predictable. The work of scientists depends upon God's creation and his sustaining the creation. When we come to the pages of the New Testament, we learn it's the, that it's the eternal son, the second person of the triune Godhead, who was God the Father's agent in creation. Jesus, the one who laid down his life for you, Christian. Jesus is the one who made the universe. And he is the one who sustains the universe. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he is spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. You are alive and moving. This world is spinning. It is following its correct orbit and not barreling into the sun this very moment because Jesus, the Savior, sustains it. We're told something similar in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We're told that by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Things are not falling apart because Jesus is at this very moment holding them together. So when we come to Psalm 148 and we answer its call to praise, we give praise to the sovereign maker who is our savior. We rejoice in the son's power in creation. The Messiah is the maker whom we praise for his might. But this psalm, it teaches us something else too. This psalm teaches that you should praise your maker for his majesty and his mercy. This is our second point. Praise your maker for his majesty and mercy. So the, the first half of the psalm, it only gave one reason for praise. But as this psalm kind of reaches its crescendo, it gives us actually two reasons for praise. Majesty and mercy. See if you can spot them. Follow along as I read verses 7 to 14 now. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Verses 7 to 14 reveal a beautiful symmetry to that of verses 1 to 6. Just as there were two groups called to give praise to the Lord in verses 1 to 6, so there are two groups called to give praise to the Lord in verses 7 to 14. It was the heavenly beings and bodies in verses 1 to 6, but it's all God's creation and all those made in God's image in verses 7 to 14. Look first at the praise that is to be given from all God's earthly creation. You see, verse 1, it called for praise to the Lord from the heavens. But what do you see in verse 7? Where is praise called forth from there? It's from the earth. The first half of the psalm called forth from praise from what was above. Now we're looking at what is called forth from praise from below. Everything that is in the sea, on the land, in the atmosphere, and everyone in mankind is to praise the Lord. The God who made all, reigns over all, and is to receive praise from all. And in verse 7, the psalmist, he invites us to dive into the depths of the sea in order to behold the, the beauty of God's creation there. Have you considered the great sea creatures in the deep of late? I'm not talking about Nessie, Loch Ness Monster, no, but the creatures that are actually there in the deep. 
Have you considered the lion's mane jellyfish that can stretch over 120 feet long and weighs in over 200 pounds? A jellyfish that is over 120 feet long. Or the blue whale, which can weigh in at over 440,000 pounds and reach over 100 feet long. That's to say nothing of the giant oarfish, the great white shark, or the giant manta ray. There really are some incredible creatures in the depths of the sea. They bring God praise like the stars. They declare the beauty and the creativity of God as you see them and steady them. But not only does the animal kingdom in the depths of the sea bring praise to God, so does all that takes place in the atmosphere. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, as verse 8 says. This reminds us not only of God's command, this is decree back in verses 4 and 5, but also what was expressed in the previous psalm that we studied together. If you look over at Psalm 147, back to verses 15 to 18, you'll see that God's word is, is active. It's sent out into the world like a courier carrying his command here and there. God's word is delivered from place to place, and God's world obeys God's word. That's what's being proclaimed here in our psalm. All of the weather events that have ever happened or ever will happen are from the decree and the command of God. Even today's weather events with its gloominess out there, it's fulfilling the command of God. In its own way, the weather brings praise to God. It boasts of his power. One of the things that I love to do when a storm rolls in is to go to the biggest window in front of our house. And it makes my wife a little bit nervous. But I love to watch the trees bend, especially the crepe myrtle. I don't want it to break, but I, I love to see, wow, look at how that wind is just force it over. I stand amazed at the power of God who made the storm. Charles Spurgeon said, Though rushing with incalculable fury, the storm wind is still under the law. That's because it's coming from God's word. He says, it moves in due order to carry out the designs of God. It is a grand orchestra which contains such wind instruments as these. Have you ever thought about that the storm is a wind instrument of God? And beloved, remember that the Savior who died for you is the sovereign over the storms. What was the response in Mark 4.39 when Jesus spoke the words, peace, be still? The wind ceased, and there was great calm. And, and do you remember the response of the disciples from Jesus' miracle? Mark 4.41 tells us, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea should obey him? Who is it? It's the maker. He, he authored all of the weather events, and he has authority over them and can tell them to cease. When Jesus ruled over the raging sea, he revealed that he's the Lord of Psalm 148, who's worthy of praise. Do you boast that your Savior is the sovereign over all? There's this back and forth kind of cadence to verses 9 and 10. Do you see it? Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. What we have here is poetic merism. Uh, merism is a, a literary device that kind of contrasts two items at the ends of the spectrum to indicate fullness or totality or completeness. We actually use merisms uh, every day. So, for example, we say things like beginning to end or here and there or head to toe. 
So when we want to say that a young boy was covered in dirt from head to toe, we're, we're using a merism. So the psalmist is using merisms here to touch, on, to touch on every imaginable category of creation and to call for these things and everything in between them to give praise to God as maker. So in verses 11 and 12, we move from merisms in creation to mankind, all those made in God's image. The psalmist, like the creation account in Genesis 1, has saved the pinnacle of God's creation, those who bear his image, for last in this psalm. He calls upon royalty and rulers, men and women, young and old, to praise the Lord. Now, if everything up to this point in the psalm was made to give praise to God, then it stands to reason that everyone in mankind was made to give praise to God. Uh, perhaps you remember the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? That is to say, what was man chiefly designed and made for? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers like this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Friend, you were made to praise God. That's part of the purpose for which He designed you. I mean, I remember in, in high school growing up, uh, we were in this one particular class and we would debate the great questions of life. So we spent one class, we spent 45 minutes debating what is the meaning of life? What a waste of time because Psalm 148 can answer it in less than 45 seconds. You were made to praise God, your maker. And just as God was and is the author over all creation and thereby has absolute authority over what he has made, so he is your author and your absolute authority. Do you recognize that? Do you live as such? This is part of what verse 13 is calling for, to submit to and praise your maker for his majesty. Verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. In verse 13, we're given the first of the two doctrinal reasons why we should give praise to God. And, and realize this, doxology, that is praise, it springs from doctrine. You cannot have a doctrineless Christianity. You cannot have a doctrineless anything. You cannot have a doctrineless praise. Doctrine is always driving devotion. So why should all mankind give praise to God? Because he is majestic. He reigns in splendor and glory and honor. Because he is full of royal dignity. So much so that his name alone is exalted. Now, when the, the Bible refers to God's name, and it does it twice there in verse 13, when the Bible refers to God's name, it's a way of saying that everything that is associated with God's character and person, reference to God's name is a way of referring to the totality of his attributes, perfections, and nature. And notice the Bible's exclusivity here. The one true God does not share his glory with another. The creation does not receive praise, the Creator receives praise. What is more, there are not many gods who deserve praise. There is only one God who deserves praise. There are not many gods whose names are exalted. There is only one God whose name is exalted. Not Allah, not Buddha, not the gods of Hinduism, or Baha'i, or Sikhism, or Yazidism, or secularism, or scientism, or Zoroastrianism, or Mormonism, or Jehovah's Witnesses. Those false gods are not worthy of praise. 
Only the God of the Bible is worthy of praise. His name alone is exalted. As we read earlier in the service, the very beginning of the service, our scriptural call to worship included 1 Chronicles 29.11. says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. God will not share his glory with another. Why should you give praise to your maker? Because he is majestic and he reigns over all. Does he reign over you? Now just... Think back through this psalm. Remember verse 5, God commanded and the heavenly beings were created. Remember verse 8, where the seasons fulfill God's word. God is the author of your life. You are made to live under his good and majestic authority. Perhaps part of the reason that you are struggling through this life is because you're living at cross purposes with God's design for you. You're living under your own authority instead of his. God made you to love him and to serve him and to give praise to him. God did not make you to live under your own authority. Sin is when you reject God's good authority and live according to your own commands instead of God's commands. Now just pause here for a minute. I mean, how does this reality sit with you? That since God is your author, he is the supreme authority over your life. Are you grateful that the God who made the universe made you and has absolute authority over you? Or do you grumble at that truth? Does it it grate on you? Do you not like it? That's potentially a symptom of rejecting God's authority. Friend, think back through this psalm again. Think back through all that it says about God and what he's able to do. He spoke the universe into existence. He created the stars, all of them, with a mere word. Do you really think that your might can overcome the might of the maker of heaven and earth? For now, I want to urge you to gladly receive God's authority in your life, to welcome it, to call for it. Lord, have your way with me and to give him praise. Not merely because you've come to see that you, you cannot resist his might, but because the mighty God is majestic and merciful to you. I mean, he looks at sinners like us who resist his will, and in love, he raises up a horn of salvation for us and draws us near to himself. The holy God, who is offended by our sin, has made a way for us to come near to him. Look at verse 14. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. It is appropriate that the heavenly beings and the heavenly bodies praise the Lord. It is right that all creation and all mankind praise the Lord. And indeed, the Bible tells us that there is coming a day in which everyone will bow before the Lord. Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11 says that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The redeemed 
and the reprobate, those who have rejected Jesus, will all one day bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will not bow in praise, then you will be made to bow in punishment because Jesus really is Lord and the rightful recognition of his rule will not be refused. So friend, how will you bow? Will you bow as one of his people, as Psalm 148 puts it, as one of his saints, as one who's near to him, one he dearly loves? And what a mercy that the holy God allows sinners like us, unholy people, to draw near to him. Friend, the only way that you will bow in praise before Jesus on the last day, and not in punishment, is if you recognize God's mercy if you see and understand that the, the horn of salvation spoken of here, that God has raised up, that's Jesus. That's who this psalm is looking forward to. The imagery of raising up the horn is the imagery of an animal who has defeated his foe. Think of the rhinoceros who's standing over top and raising his horn up high in triumph. Well, the Old Testament, it picks up this imagery and applies it to what God will do for his people in salvation by raising up a king. So, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, Hannah prays, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The language of the Lord's anointed is messianic language. It's language about the Savior, King Jesus. So when the New Testament opens... The Lord, he's raising up a horn for his people. It's picked up and it's applied to Jesus. We read it earlier in the service. I don't know if you remember this. We read from Zechariah's prophecy about the arrival of Jesus. John the Baptist, Zechariah's son, is going to announce the Savior who's come. And so in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 69, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the Savior, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He wasn't talking about John the Baptist. He was talking about Jesus. Jesus is the horn of salvation that God has raised up in the house of David. And the people who first sang Psalm 148 were looking forward to and anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, of the anointed one, the one who would be this horn that God would raise up. Zechariah, if you remember from our reading in Luke 1 earlier, he spoke of salvation in verse 69 and 71. Zechariah spoke of being shown mercy in verse 72 and being delivered in verse 74. That was all that God would do in raising up Jesus, the horn of salvation. And we need to understand that salvation is not fundamentally about being saved from human enemies. It's not fundamentally about Jewish people being saved from Roman oppression. Salvation is fundamentally about the mercy of God in the forgiveness of our sins. And all of this is packed inside of the confidence that God will raise up a horn for his people. It is fitting. It is good. It is right for the heavenly beings and bodies to praise God. It is fitting for all creation and all mankind to praise God, for he commanded and everything was created. But it is especially fitting for God's people, his saints, those who are near to him, to give him praise because of the mercy that we have known and been shown in Jesus Christ. Friend, do you know the tender mercy of God? Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is when God does not give us what our sins deserve. 
For you, you realize what your sins deserve, right? God, he, he made the world and all that is in it. He made us in his image. He made us to honor and serve him, but we rebelled against him. We decided to live our own way. And because we've rebelled against the infinite and eternal God, we deserve to face his infinite and eternal wrath. That is the just punishment that's due to our sin. But God shows us mercy in sending his one and only most beloved son, in giving his son to the world that he might live the righteous life that we've not lived, that Jesus might die the death that our sins deserve, facing God's infinite and eternal wrath on the cross. And God raised Jesus from the grave on the third day to show us that we can draw near to him by turning from our sins and placing our faith in him. God shows us mercy by giving Jesus what our sins deserve instead of us. Friend, would you receive the mercy of God? Would you draw near to him in Jesus Christ, turn from your sins and place your faith in him today? Friend, I pray that today the very last line of this psalm would be the very response of your heart. May you praise the Lord. We should conclude. In Psalm 148, we have served the great might of God in creating the world and all that is in it. We have come to see that he is majestic over all that he has created. <clears throat> and we have come to see that he is merciful in Jesus Christ. Is this not the great reason for praise? Is this not the greatest reason for praise? That you who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1856, Pastor James Smith reminded his congregation of God's mercy, saying this, If you are a sincere believer in Jesus, whatever may be your present difficult circumstances, however trying, however plexing, perplexing, it will all end in mercy. You may not think so now. You may be writing bitter things against yourself. You may be misinterpreting providence and the designs of God. You may be doubting the precious promises of God's holy word. But notwithstanding your mistakes, your doubts, your fears, your false conclusions, it will all end in mercy. Boast of your maker for his might. Exalt him for his majesty and praise him. For his mercy, you always will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for how you have shown us your tender mercies in Jesus Christ and forgiving us of our sins. And all praise belongs to you. Father, would you not let there be a single day in which praise of you is not coming forth from our lips. For your glory and honor, we pray and ask. In Jesus' name, amen.